0: Here's the thing that I love about this Christmas season and about every Christmas season. This is a time for us to reflect and remember and I love that you chose that song. We are not alone. The God of the universe didn't just speak everything into existence and then leave us on our own without help. He saw the condition of humanity and in his providence sent his son, Emmanuel God with us so that we didn't have to be alone. We didn't have to try to figure out how to fix the problems of the world on our own, because he knew we couldn't do it. And so the, at the beauty, the, the base, the, the significance of the heart of who Christmas and what Christmas is about is that the God of the universe came near and he is present with us, Emmanuel. If you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. And this is about seven, eight hundred years before the birth of Christ. So we're in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, whether you use your phones or your tablets, you use the Version Bible app or your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Now as you're finding your way there, let's, here's the history buff in me. Right? I want to give us a little context historically. This is somewhere in the 8th century BC, give or take 780 to 730 BC. This is a long time ago. And at this point in history, it is incredibly volatile in the region of Galilee. Now, Galilee is not Galilee in the Old Testament at this time. It's, it eventually becomes like the heart of this Assyrian empire. But in the New Testament, we know this region as Galilee. And, and this, this area in the 8th century BC is rocked with all kinds of wars and destruction and desolation. In fact, the tribes of Israel, I say tribes because at this point, the, the, the nation of Israel has been fractured Ew. The 10 northern tribes, the two southern tribes, Israel and Judah. And by the time that Isaiah is writing this, Israel, the northern tribes, are perilously close to being wiped out by the Assyrians. And the southern tribes of Judah are fully aware of what's happening. And they are sitting back, trembling, wondering if they're next. And the reality is they are, they know that they're next. And so there are all of these, you know, kind of city-states and kingdoms that are conquering one another, and it's left every single empire in the region pretty much worn out and exhausted and wiped out. And the Assyrians are licking their chops, ready to come in and conquer it all. In the midst of that, in the midst of the turmoil, and the darkness, and the desolation, and the pessimism, and and the disappointment, in the midst of all of that, God speaks to Israel and to the tribe of Judah specifically through Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 9, this is what he says. Nevertheless, despite all that's happening, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. As the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born. And to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty God will accomplish this. Here's Isaiah. Can you imagine being the prophet in this time in Israel's history? You are the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel. Which in times when things are good and people are obedient and life is going well, that's a good job to have. Like, you speak for God. Like, that's kind of cool. Sometimes I forget I don't speak for God. That gets me in trouble, right? Like, like, that happens from time to time, right? But if you are the prophet of the Old Testament, if you're a prophet of Israel in the Old Testament, in those few moments where Israel is being obedient, this is a great job. Unfortunately, Isaiah didn't get that gig, Isaiah is a mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel and the people of Judah times of great brokenness and distress. Most of the message that Isaiah has to convey as a mouthpiece of God to Israel is doom and destruction. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, go back and read Isaiah. And we read it in our discipleship groups this summer. Isaiah and Jeremiah and limitations and Ezekiel, like... This, this is not a fun message. It's not a fun message. And you say, well, man, God was Old Testament God was angry. No, Old Testament God <coughs> knew what was best for Israel, gave them every opportunity to do what was right. They were consistently disobedient. And so God the Father had to discipline his children. By the time Isaiah is writing what he's writing, hundreds of years of disobedience and decay and downward spiral have already happened. What God is saying through Isaiah should come as no surprise to the people of Israel. And the tribes of Judah are are not really surprised about what's coming. They're watching it unfold in the northern tribes of Israel and they know it's coming for them as well. Can you imagine the darkness and the dread and the despair? There's nothing you're going to do to get out of this. And yet in the midst of that, God uses his Hope when he to them in chapter nine, I find incredibly poignant for us today in, in a world that seems dark and broken and lots of pessimism and gloom and doom, God reminds his people that in spite of their disobedience and in spite of their consequences to their disobedience, he has not forsaken and he has not forgotten. So what does he say? Guys. In the midst of darkness, a light has come. In the midst of darkness, a light has come. For unto us, a child is born. But it's even bigger than that. It's not just a human child. It's a son that has been gifted to you. My son, Jesus, the Messiah, has been gifted to you he's going to redeem these lands that are broken and hurting. And in fact, when you get into Matthew chapter 4, you see Matthew quote Isaiah chapter 9 about the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of Galilee, this foretelling of where Jesus was going to show up. 700 years before, God is telling people, I haven't forgotten and I haven't forsaken and a light is coming in the midst of your darkness. If you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write that down. God's gift of hope and peace came in the form of light. I love Christmas. I love it. And I love Christmas lights. How many of you love Christmas lights? may go specifically to see Christmas lights in, in my hometown down in Galpolis? Right? Like, Stephen, you guys, like, you do it up. Right? Like, Galp- like, it's crazy. The park, they do this illumination of the park in Galpolis, and it's beautiful, and it's gorgeous and it's crazy and they spend a ton of money on it and uh, it's it's crazy what they do but it's beautiful and it brings kind of everybody out everybody from the small town comes out to see it we do the same thing here in columbus right whether we go to the zoo whether we go down to the olentangy whether we go downtown and we see the lights or we go out and drive through the christmas lights or we go find house displays and check out the christmas lights i like to light up our house and it's not anything like over the top but it's just something fun to do right Why? I think it's a little bit, for me, it's a little bit really kind of powerful in the midst of darkness to turn those lights on. Especially during this time of year where it gets dark at 5 o'clock, right? That's just ridiculous. And here's what I've done. I intentionally did this. I'm not sure Aaron and I even talked about it. I intentionally set the timer for our lights until after it gets dark. Because I like the contrast, right? I don't want the lights to come on during the daytime so that they stay on. I want want it to go dark. And then all of a sudden, when that timer hits, boom, everything lights up. Why? Because there's something really powerful when light shows up in darkness. It's just really amazing. There's joy and hope in the midst of that. Listen, lights are not just decorative. They're symbolic. In Scripture, darkness is referred to about one of two things. Either evil or ignorance. Anytime there's darkness listed, it's usually referring to either evil, willful, nasty, broken, sinful or ignorance, our inability to find our way out of the darkness. Those are the way that it's used in scripture. And so whenever God uses symbols of light in scripture, which he does all over the place, he's doing it to contrast the darkness, either the evil or the ignorance in our world, to, to bring a juxtaposition to that. Right? Go back with me to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, right? What, what does God create first? God said, let there be light to separate itself from the darkness of the world. Like from the very beginning, God used lights as a symbolic showing that in the midst of the darkness of the world, He is the light. And then here in Isaiah chapter 9, he uses the prophet Isaiah to say what? In the midst of your darkness and your doom and gloom and all the evil of the world, a light has come in a prophetic message. And in John chapter 1, his version of the birth story says what? Like, in him was light. It was light. And even we see the juxtaposition of light and darkness At Jesus' crucifixion in Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Because what happens when he dies on the cross? Darkness falls on the world. As for a moment, the world temporarily snuffs out the light of God in the life of Jesus. And then we celebrate on Easter as the sun rises, S-O-N, rises the light then rises again in our world. Like, all throughout Scripture, there's this beautiful, powerful symbolization of hope and peace and joy and everlasting life in the light of who God is through Jesus Christ. This powerful juxtaposition against the evil and the brokenness of the world. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter then says, Not only we have a responsibility as the disciples, as the royal priesthood, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's the beauty and the power of this Christmas season. What I love about this is it doesn't just say that to us a child is born. It says to us a son is given. And notice that this is a gift of God. The Hebrew word used here is the word where we get donation. I, I found that this week and it blew my mind. To think about during this Christmas season, how many people give donation after donation after donation to gifts and charitable foundations and kids who, who are missing out on things and how many donations are given. I guarantee you, if you were to poll most nonprofits, this is the season where they get the bulk of their donations. Right? Isn't that so fitting? Because this is the season where God donated the gift of his son to the world. This Hebrew word for donation. I love this. In other words, Jesus became one of us, enmeshed in our condition so that he could know our darkness and bring light in the midst of that. That's what this season is. That's what this Christmas brings to the table. When we think about light and the light of the world, it's the God's gift of hope and peace that comes through the light of Jesus. But here's the key to this. If you're taking notes, here's the key. The message of Christmas is that the light necessary to conquer our darkness does not lie within us. If you would, open up your Bibles again and look at the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah. The end of chapter 8... ...of Isaiah beginning uh, in verse 19 says this... ...when men tell you to consult mediums and spirits... ...who whisper and mutter... ...should not a people inquire of their God... ...why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Check this out in verse 20... ...to the law and to the testimony... ...if they do not speak according to his word... ...they have no light of dawn... ...distressed and hungry... ...they will roam through the land... ...when they are famished... ...they will become enraged... ...and looking upward will curse their king and their God... ...then they will look where... Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Then he says in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom, because the light has shone. He's saying, he's saying to the people of Israel, The reason why they're finding themselves in darkness is because they have looked to the earth for their light. And if we look to the earth for our light, we will only find more gloom and darkness. How many of you say, in the midst of our world, over the last year, year and a half, the more we look to the things of earth, the more we find darkness? See, that's the problem. And here's the problem with our our secular view of of Christmas. Our secular view of Christmas. The problem is this. We get caught up in this whole idea of singing about joy and peace and unity and hope. And we say what? The light lies within us. Search for the joy within us. Look to the joy in the world. The song is not joy in the world. It is joy to the world. Because the light has dawned on us. You know what that means? It means it didn't come from here. The Hebrew word for dawned is flashed. In other words, a spotlight has been shown in the midst of our darkness, which tells us this, there is no such thing as finding light in darkness. The light had to show up and dawn on us. Do you want to know what the message of Christmas is? The message of Christmas is not, if we all get together, we can fix our world. That is not the message. The message is, the more we look to the earth, the more darkness we will find. But light has dawned. In our world. It's not this eternal pessimism that the world is without hope. And it's not this optimism that we can fix it ourselves. It is found and rooted. The message of Christmas is rooted in the person of Jesus and the light that has dawned in the world. And it cannot be found or manufactured from the things of earth. It must be received and accepted as something that has flashed upon us by the God of the universe. And that's what Christmas is about. That's the message we should be conveying. Not that, hey, look at all the lights and how we can bring peace and hope to the world, but that in us we cannot do it and we cannot find it here. But a light has dawned. And that's why I love verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9, that it begins with the word, nevertheless. Despite the brokenness, Despite the darkness, despite the evil and the ignorance, despite all that the world has done to bring darkness, nevertheless, a light has shown. And that light has become the life and the hope of humanity. The message of Christmas is not that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In fact, our attempts to do so have only led to more darkness. It's not until chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah clues us in on exactly where our light and hope is found. And he says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that it is by his wounds we will be healed. The light that has dawned upon us. Which is why, I don't know about you, but when we read this together, that whole little section about warrior's boots and garments rolled in blood thrown for the burning, like I, was trying, I was like... For years, I've been trying to figure that out. That that doesn't make sense to me. Why you talk about the light and then you talk about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Like, what does this warrior's boot have to do? Here's what Isaiah is saying Throw your battle gear in the fire. Because your hope is not found in the things of earth. The light has dawned, the battle is His, and our hope is in Him. So all those things that we're trying to do, he says to the people of Israel and Judah, stop worrying about fighting the wars against Assyria. Stop worrying about fighting the wars eventually against Persia. All of those things will be meaningless and worthless. Your hope is not found in the things of earth. And guys, I don't know about you, but for me this is huge this Christmas season. Because I've been struggling with the darkness of our world. It's a battle, right? Right? It's, it's a battle living in this world that we're living in with all the political divide and all the racial hate and all the social struggles that we're having and all the issues with COVID and all the things that are going on in our world. This is a battle. And the unknown and the fear and the unrest and the, what's going to happen next and the, and the polarization of ideas and the hatred and vitriol from both sides. This, it's wearing me out And this passage is a great reminder to me that the more that we look into the things of earth, our political structures and our social divisions and our battles, the more we look in, all we will find is more gloom and doom and darkness and destruction because the light is not here. The light has dawned and we must be focused on that. And that's why I think he gives us these characteristics of God the Father In the name of the Messiah, when he says this, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is sharing to us and the entire world what hope looks like in the light of Jesus. You know what's tough about this? Is this kind of gift that has been offered is sometimes hard to swallow. It's sometimes hard to swallow because that means we have to swallow our pride and actually admit that we can't do it. We're powerless. We can't figure this out on our own. This is not ours. This is like our righteousness is filthy rags. So sometimes it's hard for us to receive this kind of gift because it means in accepting the light that has been dawned upon us is admitting the darkness that we have found ourselves to be living in for far too long right it's sort of like if somebody were to give me a weight loss book for christmas don't do that right because it's true i could probably use it but that's going to be a tough pill for me to swallow if that's the gift that you think you need to give me this christmas right cuz by accepting that guess what i'm having to do yeah i need to lose some weight same thing like if you buy me a treadmill don't buy me a treadmill just well, it'll be what all my clothes hang up on in the basement, right? Like, but it's the same thing. Like, yes, I get it. I'm fat, right? Like, listen, for us to embrace the light that is Jesus, what does it mean? Yes, I am in darkness, which means one of two things: I have been wrestling with evil, or the ignorance of how to get out of evil, and I need. The light and so that's why i think for so many people even the pharisees in jesus day the reason they struggled so much is to to actually embrace jesus meant what embracing their own sinful condition and the darkness that they found themselves in but the beauty of the message of christmas is this the light is not found in the things of earth but in the light that dawned when jesus came to our world And the reason that's so powerful at Christmas and why why so many people need to hear that is because of this. Jesus' greatness is seen in how far down he came to love us. How far down he came to love us. Catch what C.S. Lewis says about this idea of Jesus coming to us. He says, Everywhere that great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. Let me me unpack that a little bit just simply. Here's the Aaron version of that. Whenever something so perfect as the God of the universe chooses to enter the lowly of the earth, it shows as a testament to the power and the greatness of Jesus that he would stoop that low so that he could humble himself to bring light and hope to the world. Jesus came down, not just to earth, but into the embryo stages. You ever thought about that? To encapsulate the origin story of our brokenness and the seabed of creation, he goes down to the embryo stages of who we are, only to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. The God of the universe didn't just dawn in our world. He came deep into the bowels of who we are, into the embryo stages of humanity and says, I want to know you in your darkness so that I can be your mighty counselor. So that I can be the one who mediates between you and God the Father. Christianity says, Timothy Keller put it this way, Christianity says that God has been in all of the places you have been. He has been in the darkness you are in now and more and therefore you can trust him greater than anyone else. Because love came down. That's why in John chapter 1 verse 14, when John gives us the origin story of the birth of Jesus, he says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace. Thinking about that this week. I've been reading a book by Timothy Keller about Christmas. and I've just been processing this whole concept of God coming down for us in the form of Jesus. And when John says that we now, right, behold, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. You know what began to go through my mind? What if Moses were here and read this? What if Moses were were around to read this passage that John writes in John chapter 1? You say, Aaron, what does Moses have to do with this? Well, think about this for a minute. Moses asked God to see the glory of God for himself. And God said what? You can't do that, Moses. It'll kill you. In fact, he puts Moses in a little place in the, in the rock, rock facing of the mountain and puts his hand over and passes by and just a little bit of the glory of God that gets to Moses shines him, illuminates him, filled with light so much so that he terrifies the rest of Israel when he gets down off the mountain. Moses begs to experience the glory of God and God says No. And then John says, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came for the Father, full of grace and truth. And in my head this week, I was thinking, Moses must be really angry about that. Right? Like there's part of me is like, Moses has to be going up in heaven going, I'm really glad to be in heaven, but what? what is up? I wanted that. I longed for that. And I think Moses, I think Moses if he were in our world today, would look at you and I and go, are you nuts? Are you nuts to sit in darkness when you have the opportunity to experience the glory of God in the person of Jesus? I begged him for that and didn't get to see it. Have you lost your mind to think about the, that the hope of the world is found in the world rather than in the person of Jesus? Have you lost your mind? There is no reason That you should be anything but excited and extravagantly over the moon that the God of the universe gave his glory to you in the person of Jesus and light has dawned upon you. Moses must be saying, I begged God for that. Don't you miss it. This Christmas season, we should be looking at the opportunity that the God of the universe gave us in the person of Jesus and say, I want all of that. Give me as much of it as possible. Moses got a glimpse, but through Jesus we get the whole picture. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And yet, there are thousands, there are countless of Christians around the world who are just ho-hum about this season. Or ho-hum about the message. Pews are empty in our churches. People are coming once or twice a year to worship and celebrate who Jesus is. We're ho-hum about our faith. And I think Moses would look at us and go, you have lost it. I begged for it. You have been offered it. You should be over the moon about this. This is amazing. It should drive your life that we have seen the glory of the one ...and only through the person of Jesus as light has dawned. Now don't get me wrong. For the next 700 years it remained dark for the people of Israel. There are a few little highlights here and there. Nehemiah comes in and helps them find some, some joy... ...and there's a little bit of unity and peace here and there... ...throughout the next 700 years. But ultimately the darkness leads to silence... And it's in the midst of that silence that 700 years later, light dawns. And the gift of God's Son, Jesus, is donated to humanity. But we who live on the other side of that history have no excuse. What we do with the light of Jesus is up to us. Because the presence of God is available to us through the person of Jesus. And that gift of light is the only hope that we have in a dark, hopeless world. And that's, in the words of our peanuts, friends, is what Christmas is all about. Charlie Brown.